I'm Ruth Reeder, and you're listening to Fast Break, your weekly source of inspiration and motivation in these uncertain times. This week, we'll find out what one healthcare company is doing to prepare for flu season, how some schools are reopening, and get some tips on next level quarantine activities. This is your Fast Break. As we head into fall, health officials are stressing the importance of getting a flu shot more than ever before. Since there is no vaccine for COVID-19 yet and the regular influenza season is coming, they're warning of a twindemic. Hospitals around the country are bracing themselves for the onslaught of patients, and here to talk more about that is Rich Fezco, National Director of Systems, Standards, and Innovation at Crawfel Healthcare. Welcome to the show, Rich. Hey, everyone. How you doing? I'm doing okay. You know, (laughs) (laughs) such a crazy time. It feels like it gets crazier all the time. So speaking of which, I'm really curious to hear, what are some insights you can share with us from the past five months of the work you've been doing? Yeah, you know, they have been unprecedented times with the pandemic. You know, our insights have really been, I think, triple tiered. Number one, from an infrastructure standpoint as an organization, we are blessed to have robust processes, which had allowed us to pivot with regards to the nuances of the pandemic, really meaning the regulatory changes, CDC is an example. And for our own associate safety, it's allowed us to be in front of uh, the use of PPE, uh, the appropriate disinfectants. And holistically, from an innovation standpoint, we have found the, the emergence of innovations that we were already ahead of and new innovations that were designed for one thing, we can apply them for others as well. So it's it's been unprecedented. It's been um, eventful for sure. But we've been able to, I think, weather the storm, at least to this point, with those ideas and those uh, those outcomes. That's so interesting. Um, I'm really curious, what are some of those ways that you've found yourself repurposing technology for one thing and turning it into another? Yeah, great question. There's a couple of things. We were an early adopter of UVC back in the 2006, 2007 timeframe. Uh, The idea around the use of UV is to help as an adjunct technology to mitigate the risk of HAIs in OR suites, after isolation room discharges, again, after manual cleaning. But we found through the lack or the, the low manufacturing of items like masks, that UV could be used to help mitigate the risk of pathogens on N95s and surgical masks and so forth. There's been a few things that we have found along the way. I'm so curious to hear how your cleaning habits have changed because, you know, hospitals already have such high standards for cleanliness. What have you had to change? What's different about it? Is it the frequency? Is it the way you clean? So from a standpoint of our methodologies and frequencies and standards to this point, it was obviously heavily focused on the clinical spaces where we would still have routine cleaning procedures executed in elevators, waiting rooms, and lobbies. So in the midst of the pandemic, we were able to increase our frequencies in the lobbies, waiting areas, but specifically towards the surfaces that were heavily touched. Furniture, elevator keypads for the floors, ATM machines and the code pads. So we were able to identify strategically surfaces in those spaces that would be touched more frequently than others, heighten the frequencies on cleaning, all the while continuing to maintain the frequencies thereafter. Same thing would would apply in the clinical spaces. We were most cautious of cluster mitigation. So meaning regionally, little suburbs or boroughs that may have cluster events. Well, we were looking at that from a standpoint of nurse units. We would try to mitigate 
any clusters that may happen in the common areas, the corridors and nurses stations and so forth, because of the interaction with the COVID patients and patients alike. Mm -hmm. That makes total sense. And can you tell me how the, how does your technology measure cleanliness or are you sort of relying on, you know, just like the efficacy of the methods you're using, you know, based on research and that sort of thing? Yeah. Another great question. So in 2010, we began to use a product called ATP. It is a product that has a swab element to it where we would swab a surface like a bed rail, elevator keypads and so forth. So we still do visual inspections for identification, but to take that to the next step, we would utilize ATP to help swab a, a particular surface. And within about 40 seconds, we will know if there are any pathogens or microbes uh, remaining on that surface. It could be unsafe to human beings alike, uh, whether the community patient and so forth. We do require certain registrations, EPA is one of them, on disinfectant products and dwell time capabilities. Uh, so that, that is a part of the process as well. And for adjunct technology like UV, they have reporting systems as well that are cloud-based and so forth. So we're able to uh, capture and glean that information accordingly as well. And was that something you were doing previously? Because to your point, like UV, that stuff is measured. Do you find yourselves measuring more closely or, or sort of like double cleaning in a way that you weren't before? So from a standpoint of being forward or in front of the pandemic, I think it's safe to say we were and we remain there with, with not only our processes, the safety of our associates, but also technology. The idea around the measurement and the execution of the products, yes. So, so the frequencies have changed a little bit. The scope has changed a little bit, and we've been able to pivot with those scopes and frequencies, as I mentioned. We're fortunate to have a UV partner that has built-in cloud-based technology that we can glean the information in real time, share it with our clients, share it amongst ourselves to see how effective and what we're working towards to address you know, HAIs in particular, but in this case, the pandemic as well. And HAIs meaning hospital-acquired infections. Right, which is really what like a lot of the stuff was invented for, right? Right, exactly, exactly. So now, you know, we're coming into the fall and there's obviously a lot of concern both about, you know, a potential second wave or just really a new, a new spike in COVID-19 infection and also the flu, uh, which you deal with normally. And so I'm curious if you're doing anything differently in preparation for the fall, the winter, and how that compares to how you normally sort of prepare for an influx of flu. Yeah, you know, the, the again, unprecedented fall we're, we're going to be dealing with, at least here in the United States. I think the first step, and, and it's coincidental because it's the first process in our white paper about hand hygiene, we have recreated our hand hygiene training as being paramount in helping us all to reduce the risk of sharing infections from one person to another. Uh, the other part is the masks. You know, the era of the comfort mask has become present in our daily lives. And so we wanted to make sure we had explanations on comfort versus N95s versus surgical and procedure. So we've been able to adapt that into our training programs. That being said, you know, the collaboration that we have with our learning and development team to circulate that material and to make sure that we're reinforcing it with our safety team with regards to staying in front of not only our, our exposed or potentially exposed associates, but having safety protocols in place for testing where we have alignments and, and working towards additional alignments with like Quest Diagnostics and CVS and others. And then the collaboration with communication and, and, and circulating through a routine cadence to get information out to the field to make sure that our, our folks are safe, not only 
at the workplace, but then safe going home as well, giving them some pointers and tips through those dynamics that I just mentioned. And that, you know, I, I have two kids, one's in college, one's in 11th grade. So I am extremely sensitive, you know, from the scholastic standpoint, the education standpoint, and how that has an effect there too. So our education division also follows very closely the same things that we're doing in the healthcare world as well. Really, are they doing anything different this year, do you think? Well, some of the testing of our folks, monitoring symptoms where that was more of a spring system that has continued to prevail here into the fall. The use of the technology over and above the frequency uptick that we have found in terms of the areas, the, the, the waiting areas, the lobbies, the elevators that were a little different from the past. They are doing those types of things in the education side as well in public restrooms as we are in healthcare. So all of those points of contact are receiving heightened attention. I guess that is a newer part of this fall uh, versus 2019. And I'm also curious on the school front, you know, how important is it to clean surfaces frequently? You know, I feel like there's been varying importance placed on surfaces. Obviously within hospitals, it's a completely different thing because to your point, you have the, the potential for hospital infection. So what is that in schools? Like wh- how, how do you think about surfaces in schools, especially in light of the pandemic? Yeah, so I guess the best way I can explain it is is two examples. One, let's just say a classroom, heavily touched desks, chairs, and so forth. The disinfecting in between classes is one methodology. Uh, the other part is, quite frankly, the use of UV as an adjunct, as we would call discharge cleaning in healthcare after a patient leaves, after the classroom is shut down for the day, after manual disinfecting, we would use UV to help mitigate any types of pathogens, including the COVID, that could be in contact with those surfaces. Our understanding is that the COVID-type pandemic could linger on a surface for X period of time, depending on that surface construct. So the use of UV or even electrostatic spray helps to mitigate any manual misses and performance from that end. Offices, believe it or not, as well, the office folks in the education facilities, as well as the healthcare facilities, the same technologies are helpful there too, and and methodology. So more frequent disinfecting in-office spaces, even private restrooms, of course, and also the use of UV in particular in offices to help mitigate any contact pathogens that may have resulted from interaction from the community, um, family members, and so forth, that uh, we are trying to mitigate those types of risks in those spaces as well. So technology is big, methodology and frequency, um, that's all changed in terms of the uptick in those, those approaches during this time of year. And why do you think that schools have been thinking so much? I mean, like, obviously, the pandemic has has gotten schools to think about surfaces in a way that perhaps that they didn't previously, right? But, you know, how big is the risk of contracting COVID-19 from a desk, for example, um, or these high-touch places or sort of what is the value of cleaning like this and disaffecting like this in places like schools who have limited resources as opposed to hospitals where the need is so much more obvious? Because the pandemic is primarily spread, at least as far as we know, from person to person directly, the chance of spread by way of a surface still exists, but may not be as prevalent as person to person. So that means if if someone were to sneeze, that sneeze aerosolization Um, lands on a surface, that surface becomes contaminated. For how long it remains contaminated, the experts can't even tell us for sure. So we've taken the extra precaution to make sure we're upping our game with frequencies and disinfecting, using the right technology based on intelligence to address those situations as well. 
And I, and I have to say that the optics of doing that shows the community, no matter if it's the healthcare community or the education community, that that facility, along with our journey, are helping them to be safer and to mitigate those harmful pathogens. That totally makes sense. The last thing I would ask you is just, do you have any good advice for parents and students who are going back to school this fall? And actually, you know, I mean, a lot of students are working from home, but some are, you know, going back to classrooms. And I'm curious if you have any advice. Yeah, I, I think hand washing is paramount. Don't underestimate the frequency of hand washing as well as the use of, of hand sanitizers. Um, but hand washing really is, is the first step. The reminders for kids of all ages about proper hygiene holistically and making sure that they're, you know, one of our other training classes is social distancing and so forth. Um, before this, we didn't practice social distancing in our workplace. So now social distancing, and it's tough with kids, with their friends, but the idea around making sure that there's a responsible distance, responsible manner, mannerisms and the hygiene along with that is the best advice I could give. And, and I guess finally, symptomatically, if, the, if a child is feeling symptoms of any, any type, they should immediately report that to their parents. That is great wisdom, honestly, for the pandemic and also beyond. So thank you, Rich, so much for joining me. Thank you, Ruth. Schools around the globe and around the country are reopening, and that means opening up an opportunity for COVID-19 transmission among teachers, students, and the wider community. Still, public health experts think the social-emotional learning that kids get from school is too important to forego altogether, even if COVID-19 presents risks. The question now is how to do it, what happens when cases emerge, and what marks the tipping point for shutting schools back down? Public health departments in close coordination with state leaders are still largely trying to figure that out. Public health experts say that COVID-19 infection has to be contained in order for schools to reopen. There's been little guidance at the federal level. The CDC has been especially light on this subject. It does not list a threshold for school closure, nor does it cite specific infection rates. The CDC only advises that schools should consider closing if community transmission is substantial and uncontrolled. But what ultimately constitutes containment varies from state to state. In New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo says that school districts can reopen if community daily infection rates stay below 5% on a two-week average. Meanwhile, the California Department of Public Health is advising its county health departments to keep schools closed if the surrounding community registers more than 200 cases per 100,000 people over the same two-week period. Of course, it's not just public health officials and legislators who have a say as to whether students return to school in the fall. Parents, teachers, and students also have to weigh in. Teachers unions around the country have actually been pushing back against returning to classrooms this fall out of a concern that their members might get sick. A school nurse I spoke to for this story named Amy Dark says that whatever happens this fall, it will be an evolving situation. Ultimately, she says, school closures will be dictated by both public health officials and Department of Education officials. Until then, she'll be helping manage students as they return to classes this fall. She says, quote, I don't imagine returning to the days of 9 to 3.30 anytime soon. Next up is Fast Company senior staff writer Liz Seagrin with some suggestions on how to go beyond baking banana bread in quarantine. When the pandemic 
started, I racked my brains for fun activities to throw myself into. And like everybody else, I baked a lot of banana bread, I learned how to use a sourdough starter, and I finally figured out gardening. But we're about to enter month six of the pandemic, and I think that a lot of us are ready for new activities to keep us engaged through this pandemic. So I've been looking around for new activities to do, and I think I've found them. I have found three really fun, engaging activities that take a lot of time, but you know what? We have quite a lot of time on our hands now. Now might be a really good time for us to dig through all of those old home videos and photo albums that are collecting dust in a basement or attic somewhere. There is an amazing company called Legacy Box that will take all of your old media in whatever form it comes in and digitize them for you so that you can see them on your computer or your iPhone and share them with other people. So I spent a couple of weeks digging through all of my, my own and my family's photograph albums. I found photos from my childhood, I found my parents' wedding album and I sent them over to Legacy Box to have them digitized. Now, just like you, I was totally worried about letting go of these amazing pieces of my own family history because I was worried that they might get lost in the mail. But fortunately, Legacy Box has been doing this for a while. And to reassure customers, they are constantly in touch with you at every step of the process. As soon as UPS has your box, they'll send you an email. When the box arrives, at the Legacy Box warehouse, they will send you an email. They will even tell you as your photographs are being digitized. So you feel like you're there throughout the whole process. It can be kind of a big deal to go through all of these memories and take out these fragile photographs. But I'm really glad I did this because now I know that all of these photographs exist in digital form where I can share them with other people and I don't have to worry about the original falling apart over time. I ended up loving this service so much that I digitized about 750 photographs, but you don't have to send all of your pictures in at once. So to get you comfortable with the idea, Legacy Box offers a starter kit where you can send in two items. So that could be two films, two tapes, or two sets of 25 photographs. At the beginning, I was interested in Legacy Box because I just wanted to preserve these photos. But what I didn't realize is that the entire process allowed me to go back into my own family history and look at photographs that I hadn't seen in a long time, which spurred all kinds of amazing memories about my own family. And I was also able to share some of these photos with my four-year-old daughter and my husband and my mom. It's been an amazing opportunity to bond as a family. After I digitized all of these photos, I was really excited about the opportunity to turn them into a copy table book with carefully curated photos from the past, rather than just taking my old dusty photo albums and putting them on the coffee table. So I found this amazing startup called Artifact Uprising that helps you create all kinds of photo-related products. My favorite thing is a travel album that they create. When you put one of these books together, it'll look like the kind of beautiful coffee table book that you might find at an art and design bookstore. Part of it is that the company hires these designers to help you create these pages that look extremely artistic. 
I personally used the service to take old photos from trips that I had taken with my family and put them in a coffee table book that I can share with my family. But you could use the service for anything. You could use it for more recent photos or just to remember the trip that you took last summer. Part of the reason that Artifact Uprising is such a great service is that they make it really easy to find the photos that you want and place them exactly in the place where they'll look the best. So I found this process very quick and easy and I'm really happy with the book that I've created. It allows me to keep these images close by uh, without having to pull up dusty, fragile photos that exist in my photo albums. As the months have been going on, I have been looking for fun, exciting ways to keep my mind engaged during this time. And I stumbled across this beverage brand that I love called Sunwink that has been organizing these fun activities that will create community during this pandemic. And so they have organized Zoom classes with people from across different creative industries. I have taken a painting class, a horticulture class, and even a jewelry making class. So I know what you're wondering, why would a sparkling beverage brand be hosting these classes? Well, think of it like this. This is the kind of thing that you would do if you were stepping into a Sunwink store and there wasn't a pandemic on. It would be a fun way for you to do something enjoyable with other members of the Sunwink community. And I've just been having a great time. Well, the fall is here and we're still in the middle of this quarantine. So now might be a great time to break out of your quarantine routines and try something new. That's it for this week. Fast Break was produced by Avery Miles. Be sure to check in with us next week for another roundup of helpful tips and creative ideas to stay positive throughout this challenging time. You can subscribe to Fast Break on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you like the show, please leave us a rating or a review. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ruth Reader.